This morning, I want to help us think about what drives our passion, what passion looks like, and where passion leads us to, all right? What, why, the why of passion, the what of passion, the where of passion, all right? So the first thing, encouragement is this. It's a truth, all right? His presence drives our passion, all right? The presence of God is what drives our passion. The setting of this psalm is most likely a pilgrimage to one of the festivals in Jerusalem, okay? So the, the, the people in the, in the nation of Israel, they would journey to Jerusalem at least three times a year for Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of, of, of Booths or Tabernacles, okay? And, and as they journeyed there, the focus was on not just getting to Jerusalem, the city, but more specifically, getting to the temple where it was the epicenter of the, the, the worship of the people of God. And so the temple was the place that, that God chose to make himself known in a special way. And so this is why verse 1 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The psalmist just wants to be near God. He just wants to be close to God. As Psalm 73 verse 28 says, The nearness of God is my good. There is no place I'd rather be. To the point that, that my, 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 my soul and, and my flesh, my body, my, physically I want to be there in the courts where people, the multitudes, like t- talking about thousands upon thousands of people would have been focused on God, worshiping God, praying to God, much like what we've done this morning. And so he goes on and, and he talks about how that he just wants to be near God, in the presence of God. And, and, and this should, again, this should just kind of, you know, cause us to pause and, and, and consider, all right, um, God really wants to dwell with us? Like, like, God wants to be near us. God wants to be known by us. God wants us to be in his presence. Amazing thought, really. And this is how it's always been. In creation, in the very beginning, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what we find is that God was dwelling with man, man and woman, in this place known as the Garden of Eden. And and there was complete harmony between God and man, man dwelling there in the presence of God. And this is how it always would have been if not for the rebellion of Adam and Eve to sin against God. And so we move from creation to the fall, and now God made his presence known in a different way because sin separates us from God. And so now we're in a different kind of relationship with God. We're in a different dynamic, and so we need his grace and forgiveness to draw us back into a relationship with himself. And so a lot of what the tabernacle was about, which was how uh, the, the people of Israel were instructed as they journeyed on the Exodus to build this massive tent where they offered sacrifices to God saying, hey God, we really want to live our lives for you. In fact, we are willing to sacrifice of our possessions, by the way, that you gave us and, and, and as, a, as a symbol that we need forgiveness from you and atoning side, like our sin to be covered, okay? Um, we need that. And so they worship there at the tabernacle. But then once they were established in Israel and as the, the, the center of their nation became Jerusalem where uh, David led the, the new kingdom, um, they built a temple for God. And it wasn't David who built that temple, but it was Solomon, his son, 
where God made his special presence known to the, to the people of Israel. And yet before, like, you may be scratching your head, like, okay, so like, how does that work? Like, God is like, God is God, and he's way out here, but then he kind of like would show up in the tabernacle and show up in the temple. Does that mean like God is only in one location? Like, what does that mean? All right, and so, so listen, that's not what was going on with the tabernacle and the temple, okay? God is, by the way, omnipresent, okay? That means God is present everywhere. I know that blows your mind like it blows my mind, but that's just who God is. He is present everywhere as God. And so it wasn't about specifically just only a geographic location, it was that in that place where he is worshipped, he would show up in special and magnificent ways as the people worshipped him. Okay, so like when Solomon built the temple, he would pray this prayer of dedication, and he would say, hey God, I know we're building a house for you, but look, heaven cannot contain you, nor the highest heaven can contain you. All right, so this is like, they understood the presence of God exceeded the tabernacle and the temple, um, but it was where they worshipped him. And so people long to be there. And yet God doesn't, didn't stop there with the temple, but in the story of redemption, how God is going to ultimately restore us back to himself in a permanent way that comes to us through, check this out, his son, Jesus Christ, who in the gospel of John is known as the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God, and God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Son became man in the person of Jesus. So much so that in verse 14 of chapter 1 of the gospel of John, it says, the word became flesh like us and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God showed up and dwelled. That word can be translated tabernacled among us. The very presence of God was now with people in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. But now it's not just God with us because after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, God, the Father and Son, sent the Spirit of God, check this out now, to dwell in every person who puts their faith in Jesus. So now it's not simply God with us, but it's God in us. The very presence of God is in us. Because of what God has done for us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so here's the point of Psalm 84 and all of that kind of, you know, we could call that a biblical theology of the presence of God from creation to through the fall and tabernacle and temple to redemption with Jesus coming and the spirit. And by the way, it's going to end what we'll talk about this in the very new creation where it's, it's a restored everything, restored uh, heavens and earth, and we're going to dwell with God again in an unbroken, harmonious way. God wants to dwell with us. He wants to be known by us. He wants us to be in his presence. And so, so I, I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of an overwhelming thought. But when I think about it clearly, what it does is that it motivates me to say, God, if you're that great and you want to be in with me, then I would be an absolute fool not to be in with you and want to be in with you in an increasing manner. And you say, well, Tina, okay, like, if his, if his presence should drive my passion, give me a little more. And I would just say how we get a little more is just continue learning more about who God is. Because if you understand who he is, you're going to want more of him. 
So, so just in this psalm, all right, I love this, all right? Just in this psalm, God reveals himself in a very, very dynamic way. God is Yahweh. All right, this is, the, this is the Hebrew word for God. And this came from a moment when this man, maybe you've heard of him, his name was Moses. He was the great leader of the people out of Israel, out of, sorry, Egypt, where they were enslaved and oppressed. Okay, God chose Moses to lead his people out of Egypt to the promised land, Israel. And Moses was very intimidated. He's like, I'm no leader. I can't even, I can't even talk right, God. Like, why would, why would you choose me? And then, by the way, if you want me to represent you, like, what's your name? Who am I to, to reveal you to be? And God says, I am. In other words, I am is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. It's four letters in the English, four letters in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. That's who God is. And so, so God reveals himself. He says, hey, it's nice to meet you. I am Yahweh, which means I am. And I know this kind of blowing your mind. Like, what, what, like, so God is saying, I am who I am. I will, I, I will be who I will be. In other words, I have always been, I am, and I always will be. God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He has no needs. We have a point where we were made, and we will have a point where we will die. God has none of that because he is the, the creator of the world. He is infinite. He is not like us. And so we cannot, right? And this is our temptation, right? And this is the temptation of non-believers who don't yet believe in the God of the Bible as well as, check this out, those of us who do believe, all right, we want to make God out to be who we want him to be, right? So if God doesn't fit our conception, then we just kind of want to edit him a little bit, and we want to kind of make him fit our box, and God is like saying, hey, you know what? I've already introduced myself. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. When these are, you see here on the screen, it's all coming from this psalm that we just read. I am perfect and complete in power. There's nothing I can't do. No one can strong arm me. I always have the final word. I am omnipotent, all powerful. Not only that, I am the living God. God is involved and active in our world. And he is the king. He is the benevolent protector of his people. He reigns over the whole world, and he reigns over us. Yahweh is not just the king, but he is my king. He is my God. What a beautiful thought that God wants to be so intimate with us that, it, you know, it's like my wife, like there, there is, like she belongs to me. We celebrated 11 years yesterday. It was great. It was awesome. Kids were sick. All right, we're going to celebrate again on Wednesday night, right? But like she belongs to me. She is mine. And God is saying, look, if you, if you belong to me and I belong to you. The king, my God. He is the deity, verse 7. And, and I love this. In the Septuagint, okay, that is, I know this is getting a little technical, but that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so when Jesus showed up and arrived, okay, most people in that day would have been reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It was called the Septuagint. And the way this is translated out in the, in the uh, Septuagint, that word for Yahweh, okay, in verse 7 is the deity or the God of gods. 
So God has no rival, right? Like there's no competitors with God or against God, okay? God is supreme. He is the God of Jacob whose redemptive plan stretched back to a man of faith who had a family of faith, who then had 12 tribes, the sons who became the nation of Israel, the people who worship God. And now everyone who has faith in Christ is part of that family, is part of that nation. He is a son and a shield. Verse 11, what poetic imagery it is that God is a a son for us. He illuminates, he gives life, he radiates everything that is positive and true and joyful. He is a shield, he protects us, and he is the giver of good gifts. All of that in verse 11. Listen, God, like a good father, always gives good gifts to his children. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is what it says, Psalm 84, verse 11, right there. And so we can receive good gifts from God. We can experience his favor. And like favor, I find a favor a difficult word to define. It's, it's, it's kind of like man, God bestowing his grace upon us. Like when, when, so when the favor of God rests on someone or a situation, what we're basically saying is like God came through when there was no other way. Like God is shining his favor on us and what just happened can only be explained because God showed up. He bestows favor and honor on those who love him. Yahweh, Lord Almighty, my King and my God, the living God, the God of gods, who is the God of Jacob, a son and a shield to his people and giving completely good gifts. This, this is our God. And just to make it explicit, like we, when we come to God, we do not come to a one-dimensional God. God is multi-dimensional. Like, and by the way, this is true of every single psalm. Like 150 psalms, we're going to get a multi-dimensional view of God in every single one. Show me one that's not. Just a great question. When you read the Bible, just say, what does it say about God? Like you can just stop there. If you only ask one question of every passage that you read, hey, what does it say about God? You would have everything that you need to know, at least working out from those, those implications of those truths about who God is, Yahweh, the living God. I hope that moves you today. I hope that creates a bit of passion in your soul that we are coming to this kind of God. You guys all right? You with, you with me? Are you stunned by who God is? Like, is that what's going on here? I'm just amazed, amazed, amazed. So, so when we understand that his presence drives our passion, then hopefully that moves us to live with a consuming passion for him. And this is where we get into all of this language of longing. Check verse 2. My soul longs. Yes, not, not only does it long uh, for, for God, it, it craves God and to the point of like being desperate for him, all right? But it even faints for God. This, one Hebrew scholar translates it like this, my whole being craved, yes, exalted. I wasn't saying I was God, by the way. Let me take that off, all right? Um, thank you, just so we're clear, all right? My whole being craved, yes, exhausted itself for Yahweh's courts. My heart and my body, they resound to the living God. It's little wonder that C.S. Lewis and his reflections on the Psalms said that he preferred to talk about not so much a love for God as much as an appetite for God. So, so I just would ask you today, like, 
what's your appetite level for God? Like, how much do you want God? How much do you crave God? How much do you long to be in God's presence? I mean, do, have you ever walked into a house where maybe there's been something cooking in the kitchen for like four or five, maybe six, seven hours, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe in a crock pot, or now we got these Instapots, or maybe just something on the stove, you know, like favorite family recipe. Like what happens when you open the door to that house? The, the aroma just hits you, right? And then what does that do to you? It makes you hungry. How much longer till that's ready? How much longer till I can enjoy how good that meal is going to be? Because I can, I can, the aroma is so sweet, I can almost taste how good it's going to be. And this is how it should be when we come to the things of God, right? So just like put it in practical terms. You, you, you see some people, you know, praying, and it's like, man, I want to be in on that. You hear people singing praise to God. Hey, can I get in on that? You see people serving together and putting others before themselves, like, oh, that's who God made me to be. Let me get in on that. Let me get in the, in the crowd here. What's your appetite level for God? Do you enjoy him in such a way, just like a good meal, that, that it satisfies you? Like, it really makes you happy? You know, it's like you just can't keep, like, a good meal, I'll just, here we go. Uh, a couple of days ago, my family was in Agunquit, Maine. We just took a couple of days vacation, all right, short trip. And uh, there's this place called Perkins Cove in Agunquit where they have this place called the Lobster Shack. All right, now, one of the, the, the blessings of being a dad of three little girls as well as a wife who, um, you know, eats but doesn't eat, like, usually everything on her plate is that I get to, like, eat all of... So I had my lobster roll, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was, mm, it was so fresh off the boat, all right, just so good. And then I got some of that fish taco. I got some of Jordan's French fries. Okay, man, I was just, and I, and I, I overate, okay, forgive me, uh, but, but, but I just, it was so good. I just wanted more and more and more, and I couldn't stop talking about it, right, because I enjoyed it so much. This is how, like, when you come to the, the, the bread of God's word, like, is it good to you? Does it put a smile on your face? Do you talk about it after you've absorbed it? Live with a consuming passion for God. We, we see three illustrations of this throughout the, the psalm. Okay, I love verse 3. It's, so, it's almost funny. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest. So in other words, like, God, I'm envious of the birds, the birds get to make their nest in the temple. Man, I just wish I were like that bird, just there in the presence of the worship of you. And then he says in a very poetic and strong way in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So think about that. I mean, it's pretty logical, right? Like, give me one day with God, and I'll take that over a thousand days Anywhere else doing anything else. Is that how you feel about God? God, what do you, what do you love the most in your life? Like, what, what, what moves your soul? Like, would, would you take just one day with God over that thing? The psalmist would. 
A day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. I would, then he says this, look, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. You know what that's like? Just, hey, if I can just be there, you know what I'm saying? If I could just be in that place, you can give me any task that you want to give me. And I'll be satisfied. Because I want to be near God. Give me the lowest responsibility. Just put me near the presence of God. You say, Tina, give me more on what this looks like. Um, I was just reading a book a few few weeks ago. I was on a whole day spiritual retreat. We actually ask our staff to do that. So I hope you're cool with that because I think, you know, people in ministry can get so busy doing things for God that we don't spend enough time with God. And so can non-people, people not in ministry. Um, so we, we, we take a spiritual retreat. And on that spiritual retreat, I, I read a book, an old book, by this uh, British pastor from the 19th century. His name was John Anhel James. And he wrote this book called An Earnest Ministry. It's all about being earnest for God, having a passion for God, being zealous for God. And in that book, this is how he puts it. He says, passion is the selection of one object of pursuit and a vivid perception of its value and importance. So, so here it is. Like, If you only had one thing, what would it be? If you, if you only could choose one thing in your life, what or who would it be? Psalm 27, verse 4, the, David, a Psalm of David, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. He's just saying, if I had one thing in this life, I just want God. I just want more of God, that one object of pursuit and a vivid perception. The reason you pursue it is because you perceive how valuable it is and you prize it, and that's why you're going after it. That's why point one is so important. If you don't get point one of the sermon, you won't get point two and three. It's just how it works. The passionate are resolutely bent, tenaciously fixed. They seem to live under an influence which we feel to be contagious. These are the words of Anhel James. And then he says this. I love this. All right, I definitely highlighted like some notes in the margin. All right, um, passion urges the soul onward in its career of action at such a speed that it is set on fire by the velocity of its own motion. I'm going to read that again. All right, you need me to read that again. Passion urges the soul onward in its career of action at such a speed that it is set on fire by the velocity of its own motion. And some of you are saying, man, that sounds so ridiculous. Exactly. Exactly. And I have to be honest, all right? Like, this is my job just to tell the truth, okay, and not, like, you know, put a little sugar on top, okay? Like, if you think that sounds ridiculous, you may want to question your level of passion for God. The passion to have an intense focus, great energy for God, contagious, contagious enthusiasm that comes from God. The, the passionate, the, the earnest, the zealous, they believe what few will believe and attempt what few will attempt. 
You say, well, Tanner, this is all very theoretical, and I'm not sure what it looks like in my life this week. Well, um, we can just step back and then say, I think the passionate for God, they exercise the rhythms of grace in their life. So if you show me someone that's really praying and seeking after God, and you show me someone whose Bible looks like it's been read, you know, that week, and you show me someone that's eager to put others before themselves and serve, I'm just saying there's probably some passion there. You see, when we're passionate about that one object, it, it changes every relationship and every responsibility. That's not an overstatement, right? Like every relationship, every responsibility, when we are passionate for God in that way, then that passion consumes us to the point of influencing everything in our lives. Okay, so to go back to the broom, there was this uh, uh, a writer. He was a pastor in, in England. Okay, this is now not uh, 19th century. This is 17th century. Okay, just back up a couple of hundred years. He was a beautiful writer named uh, George Herbert. And he has this poem called The Elixir. And I can't read the whole thing for you because it's about eight you know, stanzas, but I'm just going to take two, all right? It says this. Teach me, my God and King. Sounds like Psalm 84. Thank you. Uh, Teach me, my God and King, in all things to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. Herbert, in a very poetic way, is saying, look, whatever you do for God, even if it's sweeping up a room, it turns something that you consider not enjoyable, a drudgery, and it makes it divine when you do it for him. That's what passion does. And so I would just say this, like if you, if you need some help, like how, how do I live with more passion for God? We want to help you. That's one, that's one of the re- responsibilities of leaders of a church is like help stir some passion, help give opportunities to work out some passion or to work in some passion. So if, if you want to know a next step, I would encourage you, come to next this, this, uh, this today after, after church. There's be a 45-minute free lunch, and we'll talk to you about what it looks like to maybe take some next steps for and with God. But... If you, if you really want to grow in your passion for God, I would say just rewind to the very first point that talks about God's presence driving our passion because if you want to live with passion for God, you look to the one who had the true and greatest passion ever in this, in this life, and that was Jesus Christ himself, right? I mean, when, when we read the gospel, do you know what Jesus is doing, the, the, the good shepherd? Okay, he's coming into the temple, and he's driving out the animals, okay? And he's turning over tables, and he's pouring out the change in the money changers, you know, basket because these people had turned God's temple, God's house that was supposed to be a house of prayer into a house of commerce, and Jesus was having none of it. And then his disciples remember what it says in Psalm 69, verse 9, that zeal, passion for God's house will consume us. Jesus, the true and greater presence of God, lived with the true and greatest passion for God. Isaiah Chapter 59, verse 17, it speaks of the Messiah, the one to come to bring God's salvation. It says that he wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. Like like what covers the life of Christ is passion, zeal. 
So if you want to become more passionate for God, look to the passionate one, Jesus Christ. Number three, I've got to make this one quick, all right? When we live with a Christ-centered passion, we will then watch our passion spark a greater pursuit. We said what's going on in this psalm is that the people are on a pilgrimage, right? And, and pilgrims, right, we can kind of understand this from the history of our, of our nation, right? Like pilgrims are those who leave one country and are on the move to what they perceive to be a better country, Right? And so the longing of this psalm says that the the, the psalmist is not there yet, but he longs to be. Look back at verses 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways designed. Okay, so there we have this imagery of journey, right? And the journey starts well. The journey starts with some anticipation that we are going to the presence of God. But then verse 6 says that they meet some trouble along the way as they go through the valley of Baca. What is Baca? It means weeping. So there's some challenge on the journey. There are some setbacks on the journey. There's some trials on the journey. There's some challenges that are going to be uh, in our path. But it says that, that they, they journey on through those. And so what are we learning from here? Again, we already said that, that God's presence is not only available in the temple, that, but, but it's available wherever we are, Right? They start in the strength of the Lord. They move from strength to strength. It's a picture of what it's like when we pursue God, that we are getting increasingly strong as we journey with and for God. But then listen, God's God's presence is there for the good times and the bad. And I was reminded of this this week when I got some news from Marsha about some of our friends in North Carolina. Uh, Their names are Michael and Emily Geyer. And Emily... Uh, experienced some pain in her abdomen. Uh, She went to get it checked out, and it turns out that she had an ectopic pregnancy. What that means is that she conceived, and the the fetus growing uh, had attached not to the uterus where it's supposed to be, but to the fallopian tube, which means there is no hope for that baby to live, and it's very, very dangerous for the mother's life as well. So she had to go into emergency surgery to, 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 to get everything uh, corrected. And her husband, who was actually in Haiti leading students on a mission trip, flew back to be with her. And so uh, just trying to be a good friend and say, hey, man, we're praying for you this week. Can't imagine what you're going through, but, but just know that, that we have your back in prayer. May God be your fortress. That's just all I sent to him. And this is what he said a few days later. He said, thanks, brother. The Lord has been good. I've been chewing on this Steve Temis quote this week, and this is what it says. In all of our pleasures, Jesus is better. In all of our sufferings, Christ is enough. He's proven himself to be so for us this week. What we need in the times of greatest celebration and joy, as well as the times of greatest suffering and pain, is the same, the presence of God. And so I hope you know that as you journey toward the final destination, that Jesus is not simply your true and greater presence. And Jesus is not just the example of the true and greatest passion. But Jesus is the true and greater pursuit. He is the one we are chasing after. And he is enough to get us there.
And so as we wrap our time up and as we move into to a time of response, uh, I just want to remind you of the words of Jesus in John 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus had just told his disciples that he would be dying soon and that he would be going to the cross and he would depart from them. And then he says these words. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you? And I'll go to prepare a place for you. And when I go there, I will take you to be, listen, with me. That where I am, there you may be also. So, so Jesus is going to bring us to himself that we might be with him forever. May his true and greater presence drive you to live with a true and greater passion this week and every week as you seek to live your life for God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would stir our souls, that we wouldn't come to you in a just kind of a casual way that, that says you're one option among many. You, you, um, you know, you kind of a take or leave reality in our lives. But God, we pray that you would give us a clear picture of who you are and that, that, that who you are would drive us to live our lives for you. God, there's not one of us in here, including myself, that, that couldn't, uh, you know, take a, a couple of extra doses of passion for you to live our lives for you in a unique way where no matter what we're doing, even if we're pushing a broom in our home or in our workplace, God, that we would do that for you. And so, God, would you move us, Yahweh, would you move us, the living God, our King, our God, the God of gods, the God of Jacob, our son and shield, the giver of good gifts. God, would you give us more of you so that we can live for you every single day. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen, all right? Our, our ushers are going to come forward. And the team's going to play a little bit in the background. And we're going to have an opportunity to continue to look to the true and greater presence who lived his life with a true and greater passion, Jesus Christ. What we're going to do is observe what we call the Lord's Supper. It's just an opportunity where we reflect on the death of Christ for us. His passion for us. Passion is a, is, a, is a Latin translation of the word suffering. And so as we reflect on Jesus' suffering on our behalf, we remember that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us so that we can have life in him and we can now live for him all the days of our life. So if you would, today as you come and partake of this, I'd love for you just to pray and ask God to work in your life in the ways that you know you need him to work, whatever that looks like. God, give me a greater passion for you. God, help me, even as I'm experiencing this suffering, to not lose hope, but to move forward knowing that your presence will get me through. However you need to pray today, God, I just ask that you would cry out to God, ask him to to work in your life in such a way to cleanse you of, of, of every impurity in your life that you can pursue him wholeheartedly. And then after you do that, come forward and, 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 you know, come up to your right and move across here to the left. And these friends are just going to remind you of what Christ has done for you as you partake. And then you can return to your seat. Let's pray together. God, we ask that as we partake of this time where we reflect on what you've done for us in your death, 
that we would come with gratitude and we would come with celebration and that we would be strengthened for the journey that lies in front of us so that we can honor you and that we can point others to you. That your name and your renown would be the desire of our souls. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.